Uh, if you have your Bibles, hopefully you are in Genesis 16 this morning. That's where we're going to be for the time together today. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, oh, you may have to turn me down a little bit. Nick was preaching last week. I tend to be a little bit louder than Nick. I want to blow you guys out of here. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I, was, I was preaching um, on the, the need to have a deep desire for the Lord and a deep longing for the Lord because the life of a follower of Jesus flourishes when our love for the Lord, our love for our Heavenly Father runs really deep in our lives. And, and one of the greatest catalysts to growing a deep desire and a deep longing for the Lord is having a, a very robust understanding and knowledge of Him and His character and His ways and His relationship to us. And so as I was reflecting on that message that I gave a couple weeks ago, sprouting out of that message, I felt compelled uh, to do a series of sermons that have the, the singular focused goal, ooh, uh, and that goal is to build our understanding. Sorry. It's not liking me this morning. We'll try that. Uh, so from that, that message a couple weeks ago, um, yeah, I want to do a series that, that has the singular focused goal, and that goal is to build our understanding and our knowledge of our Heavenly Father. And maybe for some of you this morning, these messages will be kind of the foundation to begin to build an understanding and knowledge of God, of who He is and what He's all about and why that matters to your life. Because I believe that when we see Him and know Him for who He truly is, our souls can't help but desire Him. Our souls can't help but want to be in His presence and want to have His fullness in our lives. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to learn about God's character and we're going to learn about his relationship to us. And we're going to do this through stories from the Old Testament in which an individual gives God a name as a result of their experience with him. Because looking at the meaning behind some of God's Old Testament names reveals aspects of his character to us. And so I've entitled this series, The Names of God and Why They Matter. And this morning, we'll begin our series with the story from Genesis 16 that Rochelle just read for us. It's a story that centers around an unlikely character. It centers around Sarai's servant, Hagar. Just a, just a side note, I'm going to likely switch between Sarai and Sarah. It's the same person. The Lord just changes her name at one point, okay? So if I say Sarai or Sarah, it's the same person. Just, just hang with me. Uh, but it, it centers around Sarai's servant, Hagar. And in this story, Hagar calls God a name that is found nowhere else in all of Scripture. She calls him El Roy, meaning the God of seeing. Or the more personal translations that some of our English Bibles use, the God who sees me. Like that's a, a deeply personal and encouraging name for the Lord. And as we go through the story this morning, I hope that all of us are going to leave here with this reinvigorated view, or maybe for some of us, this brand new understanding of the, the glorious truth that the Creator God, the, the Almighty King, the Sovereign Lord all of, over all of creation, over all the ends of the earth, is also the God who sees you right where you're sitting. 
who sees me right where I'm standing, who sees every single person right where they're at. And I hope that after this morning, we can grasp a little bit better the wonderful truth that David confesses in Psalm 139, 1 to 5, when he says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the glorious truths that are found in your word. Father, this morning as we look at your character, would you stir up the affections in our hearts through the Holy Spirit? Father, make us see who you truly are. We sometimes get caught up with trying to make you what we want you to be in a moment. But God, it's so glorious when we can see your grace, your glory, who you actually are clearly. It causes our hearts to just overflow with praise, our desire to run deep for you. And God, we know that when that happens in the life of a follower of Jesus, that it's not only beautiful for our own lives, but it is a blessing for those around us. And we will live out the life that you have called us to live. And so, Lord, grow in us our understanding of you that we may be a blessing, that we may live our lives in light of what you've called us to be. All to the glory of your name, Lord. Speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when you think about it, when you read this story, Hagar is someone whom really we shouldn't know about. Like we should never have heard about Hagar. Right? Like she, she is by all social and cultural measurements a nobody. Like Hagar is an Egyptian servant. She is a woman of low position whom as a result of her role had absolutely no autonomy. She had no authority over her own life. She went where people commanded her to go and she did what people commanded her to do. As a servant, she would be used and she would be given and she would be sold as seen fit by her mistress or her master who owned her. She is unimportant by world standards and not someone whom should have even had a blip in history, let alone, you would think, be a part of God's story. Yet the glorious thing about our Heavenly Father is that we do know Hagar. An entire chapter of Genesis is dedicated to her story. And the only reason why this is, is because of the unique providence of God. Through God's providence, instead of being given or sold to some insignificant person or insignificant family in the line of history, God saw fit to ordain Hagar's inclusion into Abraham's household. And that's pretty amazing when you think about it. And there's some personal implications for our own lives there when we consider that truth. Now, for those of you who are wondering, how did Agar end up to be a servant in Abraham's household and to be Sarai's servant? Well, the answer to that question is likely found in Genesis chapter 12. 
Genesis 12 recounts the initial call from God over Abram's life to leave his country and his people and set out for the land of Canaan. And Genesis 12 recounts part of Abram's journey through the land toward the Negev and tells us that there was a famine in the land. And because of that famine, Abram, or Abram decided to go down to Egypt where the famine was less severe. And many of you will probably know the story of what happened when Abram entered Egypt. He made a bit of a cowardly decision that no wife would appreciate from her husband. <laughs> right? So he enters Egypt and he tells Sarah, hey, pretend that you are my sister. Okay? Because you're, you're so beautiful. Right? He was worried that the Egyptians would do something. Maybe they wanted to kill him or do something to him in order to take his wife. So he told Sarah, hey, pretend you're my sister. That's romantic. Right? Oh my goodness. And so they wanted her to do that so that the Egyptians would deal kindly with him. And his plan did work to some degree in, in that sense. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he heard about Sarah from his princes. He heard that she was beautiful. And so he decided that he would take Sarah as his wife, believing that she was unmarried. And in taking a wife, it was customary to pay a bride price to the bride's family. So believing that Abram was Sarah's sister or Sarah's brother, Genesis 12:16 says that Pharaoh dealt kindly with Abram for Sarah's sake. And he gave to him sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and so on. And so Hagar was likely one of the Egyptian servants that Pharaoh gave to Abram as a result of wanting to marry Sarah. And so subsequently, of course, it all comes to light that Sarah is, in fact, Abram's wife. And they end up leaving the land, but they were able to keep the gifts that Pharaoh gave to him. And so this results in Hagar being a part of Abram's household. And so that's how she came to be in the records of God's history and the events of Genesis 16. So as we go through the story this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at it together, kind of walk through it, and then I want to pull out a few things that we should consider that have practical implications for each of our lives as followers of Jesus. And so Genesis 16, verse 1 to 3 says, Now Sarai, Abraham, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So the first three verses in this chapter set the stage for the conflict that would occur later on in the chapter that would lead to Hagar's encounter with the Lord and her rejoicing in the fact that he is the God who sees her. We read in these verses that Sarai is feeling the strain of not being able to provide Abram with an heir. Both Abram and Sarai knew that God had promised Abram descendants. He promised this first in Genesis 12 when he told him that he would make him a great nation and his offspring would inherit the land of Canaan. And then he promises it again in Genesis 15 when the Lord reiterated his covenant with Abram and spoke more specifically about the promise of a son. Verse 2 in chapter 15 it says, But Abram said, O Lord God, will you, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So Abram had believed God's promise when he gave it to him. And God counted it to Abram as righteousness. But by Genesis 16, about 10 years had passed since Abram had entered the land of Canaan and still there was no heir that had been given. And Sarah, Abram's wife, and Abram were starting to falter in their belief. Sarah says in verse 2, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, which is true up to that point. So taking into account what her mind could see in her distress, Sarah doubts that she would be able to give Abram the, pro- the promised heir that God would to- told him he would have. And I'm sure, as we've all struggled with in moments of doubt, the devil took this opportunity to be in Sarah's ear. I can just imagine. Sure, God had promised Abram a son. But did he really say it would be by you, Sarah? And so in her desperation, Sarah comes up with a plan. At this time in history, using a servant to obtain children was a custom that was employed by households. And so Sarah says to Abram, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of his wife. I want to pause here for a moment because I think it's important to point out that This was customary to use a servant to obtain children. But it was a worldly custom. It was not God's plan for Abram and Sarai. From the beginning, God intended marriage to be between one man and one woman. That has not changed. That has never changed. And Jesus reaffirms that in the New Testament as well. And so God promises to Abram, you will have an heir. You will have a son. That promise was only to come and be fulfilled through Sarah. But yes, it had been 10 years since he'd moved into the land and God had not done it yet. But he said that he would. And so they needed to trust that, yes, God was going to do what he said he would do. Here's the thing. When our hearts are set on something, even when it is something that the Lord has promised that he would do, we face a temptation to compromise. To look for shortcuts when it doesn't happen in the time or way that we expect that thing to happen. And in so doing, we often give into wicked temptations. Especially when the situation we're tempted with seems plausible. Maybe even reasonable according to fleshly wisdom. But when we rely on the justifications of fleshly wisdom rather than submission to godly wisdom, we step into sin. This is what Abram and Sarai did. Abram may have thought, well, why not Hagar? You can all hear me. You can all hear me. There we go. It's more freeing anyways. But this is what Abram and Sarah did. Right? Abram may have thought, well, why not Hagar? Why can't I obtain an heir through Hagar? 
God promised me a son. And he didn't necessarily say that it was by Sarah. And it is customary to use a servant in this situation. And my wife is encouraging me to. So why not? It's a plausible situation that seems reasonable by fleshly wisdom. But it's entirely in opposition to God. And it shows how easily we can deceive ourselves. Unfortunately, Abram had lost faith and he listened to the voice of his wife. And does that not remind you of another man that listened to the voice of his wife? Go back to the garden. Did the same thing not happen? This is Adam and Eve all over again. If only Abram had sought God's counsel, he would have easily seen what seemed plausible was wrong and had much bigger implications than what he recognized. Think about it. For Abram to go into Hagar meant Abram would be marrying her without the Lord's consent. It's not a small thing. Our fleshly wisdom can justify and make seem small what is very important in the eyes of the Lord. Interestingly, regarding the situation, the Apostle Paul, he likens the birth of Ishmael, who is Hagar's son that comes from this, he likens it to self-effort in Galatians chapter 4. Paul in Galatians chapter 4 is rebuking the Galatians for works of the flesh, of which are unacceptable to God, and he uses this as an example. But Abram listens to his wife, and he goes into Hagar, and we immediately see the results of their sinful decision. We see that sin begets more sin. Verse 4 to 6. He went into Hagar, and, he con- and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant for your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. See, one of the realities of our life is that sin begets more sin. Sin will always lead to more sin. From Hagar, there's pride. Right? She she looks upon Sarah with contempt knowing that she was able to give Abram what Sarah could not, she's prideful. From Sarah, there's a passing of blame to Abram, right? She says, may the wrong done to me be on you. Sarah quickly forgot this was her idea. And from Abram, we see him take this kind of weak stance of neutrality in the midst of the conflict. He says to Sarah, behold, your servant's in your power. Do to her as you please. And Abram stands by as Sarah deals harshly with Hagar, who, yes, is Sarah's servant, but now also holds a position as Abram's wife. He had an obligation to her, a responsibility to her now, and he washes his hands of it. So Hagar, after being treated harshly by Sarah and left, undefeated or undefended in any way by Abram, she flees into the wilderness. She runs away. She was likely attempting to make the journey back home, back to Egypt, because of where the Lord finds her in the wilderness of Shur. So let's read Hagar's interaction with the Lord when he finds her. 
The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. I don't think she expected to hear that. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And it's from this interaction with the Lord that Hagar calls the name of the Lord, the Lord the God who sees me. Verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. So this is the story of Hagar. And from it, I want to consider five ways that the Lord is the God of seeing. That God sees you and he sees me and he sees every single one of us. And the first truth is God sees you when no one else does. Or when it feels like no one else does. I said at the very beginning of this message, by any worldly measurement, Hagar was a nobody. She was a servant who had no rights, no opinions, no autonomy. A woman who would be looked upon only for the purpose of being given orders. She was in a very real sense treated and viewed as a commodity. She was bought or sold much like the sheep or the oxen or the donkeys that were given to Abram alongside her by Pharaoh. No one, it seemed, had regard for Hagar. But she discovered in the wilderness that that wasn't entirely true. That the Lord, the God who sees, had his eyes upon her. God sees you when no one else does. Or when it feels like no one else does. And maybe some of you here this morning can relate to Hagar. You know what it is to to feel invisible. You know what it is to feel forgotten. You feel alone, though maybe you aren't necessarily on your own. You may be a single woman or a single man desiring companionship, but it seems impossible to find. You may be a married woman who feels neglected by her husband. You may be a married man who feels disrespected by his wife. A young woman who's chided at school for your love for Jesus. A young man feeling the pressures of sin, unsure where to turn or how to have victory over temptation. Maybe you can't seem to shake that addiction that through Christ you know you should be able to shake. 
Maybe you've chased the pleasures of the world and it's left you so empty and so broken and so feeling void. All of these things and countless other influences in our world can make us feel very, very alone. God sees you. God sees every single one of you. He knows He's not indifferent to you. He's not uncaring of what you are going through. He sees you. Just like he saw Hagar and he came to her when nobody else did. Sarai chased her away by mistreating her. Abram didn't go looking for her, though she was his wife. But God came to her in the wilderness and spoke truth in love to Hagar because he saw her. And it's the same thing for every single one of us here this morning. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you just need to be reminded this morning of Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither soar nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? If God's eye is to the birds, how much more does he have his eye upon you, O child of God? When you feel you're most vulnerable, when you feel you're most invisible and forgotten, you can find hope, you can find power, you can find peace and joy in the name of El Roy, the God who sees you. Second, God sees your afflictions. Genesis 16, 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. You know, the, the name Ishmael actually means God hears. The Lord told Hagar, Name your son Ishmael. God hears so that every time you look at him, you can be reminded that I see you, I hear you, I know you. You know, I wonder for Hagar, she was a woman that was afflicted. And one of the things I've always wondered is, would she have wanted to go into Abram? And she didn't have a choice either way. Would she have wanted that? Denise Colmayer writes of Hagar's story, she says she'd, she'd maybe not wanted to do what was asked of her. But as a slave with no rights or opinions, she had no choice. Out of desperation, she finally fled because she couldn't take the abuse and the pain anymore. But she quickly found herself alone and defenseless, without shelter or sustenance, and pregnant, no less. To say she felt scared, lonely, and unloved is likely an understatement. She wondered in her despair if anyone cared about her or what was happening to her or her unborn baby. Elroy sought her out and arrived at the moment of her greatest need. At that moment, it was to be reassured that she was seen, that she was loved and not forgotten, that she and her unborn child, a son whom God named personally, would be cared for. You know, one of the realities of us gathering together as a body every week is that I don't know the afflictions that you are walking in the door with. I don't know everything that has brought you low this week and what you're carrying when you come into this place on Sunday. I don't know what heavy burdens every person is carrying. But the Lord does. 
And he sees all of it. And he sees you. And he sees what you're faced with. Just like Hagar who needed to be reassured that she was seen in the midst of her affliction. You can be certain the Lord sees you. That you are loved. That you are not forgotten. And he will and is caring for you. That he is with you. And he is actually sustaining you through that difficult time that you are walking through. Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I just want to encourage you with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians this morning. Maybe you're walking through something that feels really, really heavy right now. This is for you if you're a follower of Jesus. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That is incredible. When you know who it is that said those words, when you know what Paul was going through, what he was dealing with regularly, the beatings and the people that were constantly coming against him, and he says, oh oh my goodness, it's all light. (laughs) That's incredible faith. That's an incredible understanding of what we have waiting for us. And, And that's the sort of mindset that can help us get through those difficult times, though it's hard to see sometimes in those difficult moments. But this is what Paul's saying. Everything that I've gone through, all the beatings, all the things, all the, the, the awful things that have come against me, it's light. It's momentary. And it's preparing for me eternal weight of glory. Like, if you're a follower of Christ, that, that promise is for you. That's for you. Next, and I think it's one of the most important things that we need to get through our minds. God sees your disobedience. There's no doubt that Hagar was treated unfairly by Sarah. That she was afflicted, that she was dealing with with hardship. But... I want to be careful not to paint Hagar as completely innocent. Because the narrative of the story and the way the Lord speaks to Hagar demonstrates that she wasn't innocent. And it reflects the bigger truth that none of us are. In fact, the narrative reveals it was Hagar who first provoked Sarah. Sarah treated her harshly in response to being provoked by her. Verse 4, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Hagar realized that she was able to do for Abram what Sarah, up to that point at least, had not been able to do. And it made her prideful. The favor that she experienced revealed a character flaw in her heart. That's what our wicked responses are. A revelation of a flaw in our heart that the Lord still needs to deal with. That's what it is. Hagar became puffed up. She became conceited. 
She was boasting in her ability to conceive, throwing Sarah's inability to conceive in her face. Hagar became unsubmissive to her mistress, and that was displeasing to God. His word speaks much of servants being submissive to their masters, and Hagar ceased to be. Her pride wouldn't allow her to submit, and so Sarah became harsh, and Hagar fled. And what we see when the Lord meets with Hagar is he treats her as we would expect Jesus to treat someone in her position in the New Testament. Lovingly, but sternly. The Lord is gracious, but he does not turn a blind eye to the fact that Hagar has sinned. He knows her affliction, but does not make excuses for her sinful responses. He also doesn't condemn her for them, but he certainly confronts her. Look at verse 8 and 9. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Like I say, I don't think she was expecting that. There's a couple of things I think are significant here in the Lord's response. First, notice that when the Lord addresses Hagar, he calls her Hagar, servant of Sarah. Even though now she's Abram's wife, the Lord is making known that he sees her and what she needs in this moment is to be humbled and reminded of the place that she belongs. Second, the Lord commands her to return and submit to her mistress because that is where she should be. Now, this does not excuse Sarai's treatment of her. The Lord is clear in his word about how masters are to treat their servants. But as a servant, and this is hard for us to grasp in our kind of autonomous autonomous mindsets in the West, it was not Hagar's rightful position to rebel against her mistress, even though she was being mistreated. That's hard for us to grasp. Now, before anyone gets any ideas that I'm talking about something else, I'm not talking about marriage. I'm not talking about abusive marriages. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking in this context. She was to entrust her battle to the Lord, and she was to remain submissive as a servant. That was her call from God. And we hate it. We hate that idea. Like, no, no, you you rebel. You stand up. You fight against it, because that's how we're wired. That's not what should have happened. I think the most important thing that I want to pull from this interaction between Hagar and the Lord is this. He is more focused on the sin in Hagar's heart than the affliction that she was faced with. I am not saying that he was uncaring of her affliction. I want to be clear. We've already seen that he cared about her affliction, but... He focused on her sin more in their interaction with one another. Why? Why was that the case? Because our sin, not someone else's, our sin is what leads to death. It's not your sin against me that leads to my death. It's my sin that leads to my death. 
Our sin destroys our souls. And so the Lord is profoundly concerned with our sin. How the Lord handles Hagar reminds me of how Jesus interacted with the Samaritan woman at the well. John 4, 16, 18, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. With the Samaritan woman, Jesus undoubtedly understood that she had been mistreated by the many men in her life. And he would deal with that. He cares about that. But what he focuses on in their initial interaction is her portion. Her sin. What was going on in her heart? She may have been mistreated. We don't know. But Jesus wanted to deal with the sinful condition that was in her heart that kept her coming back to such men that were inclined to mistreat her. That is what he does because he loves us. He deals with our sin first. This is what he must do. Jesus will deal with each individual as required. And what he does for us through the Holy Spirit is he shows us our sin because it's our sin that needs to be uprooted for the sake of our souls. We need to know how sinful we are to see the need of his cross. God sees your disobedience and will show it to you and praise him that he does. For that person here this morning who doesn't know Jesus, you need to know that there's a God and he sees you. He knows your name. He created you to have a relationship with him and he is beckoning you unto himself because he cares for you. And he will show you, you are a sinner in need of grace. That is what every person here knows. If you're a follower of Jesus, everyone can lift their hand up and say, Amen, I know that. You're one of his masterpieces. If you're here and you don't know him, you're one of his masterpieces. But you have rebelled against him. You've ignored him. Maybe even you've hated him. Maybe you've pretended that he's not real. You have lived your life your own way by the flesh, ruled by your sinful nature. As we all have apart from Jesus Christ. But he has made a way for you to be washed clean through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Jesus died in your place, taking on your punishment so that you may walk freely with God who sees you, who knows you. When you recognize, yes, God, I am a sinner. I have rebelled. There is nothing that I can do about that on my own. I need you to help me. And you put your faith in Jesus. It's a free gift. And you are set free. God sees our disobedience. Second last, God sees your past, your present, and your future. That's a beautiful truth in light of what I just talked about. Right? We talk about it all the time. That God has saved you from your past, present, and future self. Yeah. Praise Him for that. Yeah. Anybody here who knows Jesus perfect yet? Nope. <laughs> it's a 
Verse 7 and 8, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? You know, the Lord is not asking this question because he didn't know. And they go, oh, you kind of snuck up on me, Hagar. (laughs) That doesn't happen. He asked it because he wanted Hagar to reflect on what had brought her to where she was. Where are you coming from, Hagar? Where do you think you're going? I mean, God saw Hagar from the womb. He knitted her together. He ordained her to be given to Abram. He saw the events that would lead to their meeting in the wilderness. He saw what was to come. He even tells her, you're pregnant. You're going to have a son named Ishmael. Here's what your son's going to be like. I hope the Lord never speaks that over my son. (laughs) Sounds difficult. (laughs) But the Lord sees her past, her present, and her future. And it's the same for all of us. The Lord sees where we have come from. He sees the horrific things that I did that I needed to be saved from. He sees the stupid things that I still do and the stupid things that I will do. And he loves me in the midst of all of it because of the work of the cross. And it's the same for every single one of you if you're a follower of Jesus. And last... God sees what you need. Genesis 16, 9 to 10. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. God sees what you need. And the greatest need for every single one of us in here was to be freed from the bondage of sin. And God has supplied for that need through Jesus Christ. But we have so many practical needs and God sees every single one of them. And we're going to look at the truth of that in depth more next week. When we look at the story of Abraham and Isaac, when Abraham declares God to be Jehovah Jireh the God who provides.